0: Exodus 33:12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go me, will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us, so that we are distinct? I and your people? from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The grass weathers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Please open in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. If you're using the black few Bibles in front of you, you can find our scripture passage for this morning on page 974. 974, Galatians chapter 4. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've been reading the book of Galatians together, so before we read this passage, I want to do just a little bit of a recap to where we've been. Throughout the entire book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul has been arguing vigorously against false teachers that are in the church in the Roman province of Galatia, that's so why it's called the Galatians. He wrote to the Galatian churches, and what apparently is, as we've read throughout this book so far, the false teachers in Galatia have been, uh, have been teaching, claiming that faith in Christ is not enough for full inclusion within God's people. In order to be fully saved— you needed to trust in Christ, but then you also needed to add on to that other remnants of the Old Testament law, Jewish, Jewish social customs, things like circumcision and uh, observing, as we'll hear today, observing particular days and times and the calendar. Uh, in essence, if we were to sort of sum up their teaching, we would, we would say that like this, that salvation equals faith plus works. Salvation equals faith plus works. And Paul says very clearly, this is a false gospel. Faith plus works equals salvation. It's a a false gospel. The real gospel, Paul claims, or Paul teaches, is that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. Faith in Jesus is enough for you to be completely, fully saved. Now, previously, throughout the book of Galatians, Paul has argued something like this. You need Christ. You need Christ because you're totally unable to save yourself. You need Christ, because the law is totally unable to save you in and of itself through your own works. You need Christ. Now, today, as we get into chapter 4, reading verses 1 through 11, Paul's going to pivot a little bit from that central argument, and he's going to change his tack a little bit. So instead of saying, you need Christ, Paul tells us today, look, you have Christ. You have Christ. And so why would you turn away from that? The goal of this passage is to show us the glories of Jesus so that legalism seems ridiculous in comparison. Paul is basically saying, look how amazing Jesus is. Don't turn away from that. Don't go the wrong way because going the wrong way is costly, My friend Link discovered that the hard way. One Christmas break, we were all in college. We came home and it was near the end of the break. And so uh, all of my friends got together for one sort of last hurrah before we all headed back our separate ways to school. We all gathered, but my my friend Link had to go back to Birmingham early. He needed to be there the next morning early for, for something. And so He was gonna head out after dinner. Uh, We had planned on dinner and a movie, but he needed to leave early so that he could drive down that evening. So we ate for dinner, Uh, we said goodbye to him, and then he drove off. We reconvened at my friend's house, started watching this movie. Now imagine our great surprise when maybe halfway through this movie, at least a few hours later, Link walks right back through the door. We were all confused. What happened? You drove away. We we had said goodbye to you already. What what's going on? Well, here's what had happened. Link had driven halfway to Birmingham. And then he pulled off to get gas. And he wasn't paying full attention to what he was doing, and then when he got back on the interstate, you can see where this is going. He he went the wrong way. He went the wrong way on the interstate. And so he was driving, instead of driving towards his destination, he was driving back to Huntsville, and he didn't realize it until just a few miles outside of the city limits. And by that point in time, it was too late. Going the wrong way is is a terrible thing. He was so frustrated, and and we can understand why. He had lost tons of time. He was going to have to wake up super early the next morning to try and make it on time for his appointment. He was probably going to be late anyway, and he had wasted gallons of gas all for nothing. Have you ever done anything like that? Have you ever taken the wrong exit off the interstate? And it cost you all kinds of valuable time because you were going the wrong direction. Or maybe you were driving somewhere and you just got on autopilot. And so you find yourself all of a sudden at home instead of at the store where you're going, or or work, or the gym, wherever you were driving to, or maybe you were a passenger in one of these vehicles, A, a parent or a friend was driving you, and then you had to endure the frustration of an extra long trip. Going the wrong way by mistake is terrible. There's no way you would do it on purpose, and that's the point of this text. Salvation is so glorious that when you, when you look at it the proper way and let it get into your heart, there is no way that you would want to choose legalism. It is a bad choice to go the wrong way. And so, friends, with that in, in our minds and hearts, let's hear now what Paul has to say to us this morning. This is Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, God's holy word for us this morning. I mean, that the air when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be, to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you for this mighty and powerful Word that calls us from our own latent desires to save ourselves, to view the beauties of Christ. And so I pray now that through the Spirit, that your word says is in us, even now that this same spirit would illuminate your word to us, make Christ real to us so that we would see his glories and excellencies this morning. Help us by this wonderful portrayal of the glories of our salvation in Christ. Help that to wean our hearts off of the ways that we would seek salvation through other means. Give us this grace through the Spirit. Now we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. As I said, this passage has a little bit different of a flow than before in previous texts. The, the, the goal was to drive us to Christ by showing us our own profound insufficiencies, but this text, the, the goal of this text is to woo us to Christ by showing us how much better Jesus is than works righteousness. Righteousness. As we unpack this fantastic message of salvation this morning, we're going to ask three questions. Here are the three questions we're going to use to mine the riches of this passage. First, what does Christ offer us? Second, why would we turn away from that? Third, how can we stay the course? What does Christ offer us? Why would we turn away from that? And how can we stay the course? Paul sets the background for our text by sharing a little bit about the pre-conversion spiritual state of the Galatian Christians. Before they trusted in Christ, they were slaves to the elementary principles of the world, Paul says a couple times in this passage. These elementary principles of the world would be their pagan rituals, Their adoration of the basic physical elements of the world, things that they would incorporate in their worship and adoration like fire and water and earth, things like worshiping the sun, worshiping the moon, as well as those pagan rituals. It was also their adherence to the basic philosophical tenets of their age in order to govern their lives. In sum, if we were to take all of these elementary principles and look at their practices, we would say that they were a very religious people, but all of their religious activity did not benefit them one bit. Their religious efforts gave them nothing. And if we were to go back and look at the Roman pagan world that they were a part of, we would see that that's true. The sacrifices that they did, they were very elaborate sacrifices. Religion permeated the Roman Empire, but what came with those religious efforts was not certainty or confidence or or even love. Uh, All that came was more work. The religions of that day, the pagan efforts that they were doing didn't give them any certainty that they were saved. No one in the Roman Empire was convinced that the gods even cared about them. So no matter how hard they tried, even the most devout, they, they had no certainty of their salvation. Now compared to that, with a lot of religious work and very little certainty, what does Jesus offer us? What does Christ give us according to this passage? Well, first, Jesus gives us a new identity. Jesus gives us a new identity, verses four and five. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is our new identity in Christ. We are now adopted sons and daughters of God. In the Roman Empire, adoption had profound implications for a person's identity. It was like an entire reboot to that person's life and concept and status of of themselves. The adoptive family would pay a large sum of money to redeem the individual from the previous family. That was the language they used. Paul's using that same language in our text. They would redeem the person, bring them into the new family, and with that redemption price, the adoption would take place, and that person's entire world was new. They received completely the entire full social, uh, financial, and, uh, and cultural standing of, that, per- of that, that entire family. Any previous debts, would have been completely wiped away. All of the previous social connections would have been removed and new ones established. They would have enjoyed new financial status and different cultural clout. If you were adopted in the Roman Empire, your entire identity changed. And Paul is comparing that to what is happening now in Christ. In Christ, God has adopted us. Unlike the elementary principles of the world that were completely powerless to actually make some sort of spiritual change, Jesus himself has actually redeemed us. He actually was fully qualified to make that adoption take place. Place. Jesus was fully divine. Paul says that he was, he, he was the, the son of God. God sent forth his son, which implies that Jesus was preexistent. He was fully divine, sent by God the Father to execute this divine mission of redemption. He, he was fully divine, but he was also fully human. Paul says that he was born of woman. It means that he was, he was indeed fully God and yet fully human, and he was born under the law. Meaning that in his birth, he was subject to all of God's righteous commands. And and he he emerged from being subject to all of God's righteous commands completely sinless. He was completely perfect. And so he and he alone could fully pay our redemption fee to bring us into God's family. And he, he did this through the cross. And so now... Through the sacrifice of Christ to pay for us, to adopt us into God's family, all of our debts are wiped out. We don't owe anything anymore to the Lord. We owe him obedience, of course, but our guilt, the debt that we were in, it's gone. Jesus paid for that. We're now in God's family. He's now given us this new legal status. He's given us a new spiritual standing. And we confessed it earlier in the worship service. What is adoption? It means that we're received as sons of God and have a right to all the privileges of that standing. Your core identity is that you are a son or a daughter of God. And that new identity then comes with a new intimacy. Jesus gives us a new intimacy with God. In the Roman Empire, intimacy with God was unthinkable. You you would have no no shot at actually being friends with God. Actually being in a a deep and tender relationship with the gods that you were trying to earn favor with through all of your sacrifices. But hear what Paul says in verse 6, Because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It is hard to overstate the quality of the intimacy that we now have with God. The spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, if we speak theologically, is in our hearts. Paul calls this the spirit of Christ. So the spirit of Jesus, the beloved son of God, now resides in our hearts. Jesus is literally dwelling in us. And what is he doing in us? He's teaching us how to speak to God, his father. The spirit of God is in us, moving us, giving us the confidence to cry out, Abba, father, Abba, father father. That's the words that Jesus used when he was in extreme trial. When he needed the presence of his father to be with him in the garden of Gethsemane, he cried out to his heavenly father, Abba, father. And now the, the exact same language is in this passage The Holy Spirit is teaching us to call upon God in our moments of need exactly the same way that Jesus himself called upon his own father, Abba. It's a word that that communicates extreme tenderness and the bonds of family affection and intimacy. God wants us to call on him like that. He invites us to use those, those very words. So it's like Jesus is in our hearts saying, this is how you can speak to God now. This is how you can speak to your heavenly father because you are one of his kids now. And that is why Paul says that the biggest change that came upon us in our conversion is not that we know God but that God now knows us. Verse nine, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, that's the truly astounding thing when it comes to salvation, that we are known by God. It's an unimaginable privilege to be known by God. Think back to what we just heard in Exodus 33. If God knows us, then God is for us. He's aware of our needs. He's aware of our deep desires. And his posture towards us is to bless us. Friends, that is true of you. This is true of you. You are known by God. God knows you. God is for you. God has given you his Holy Spirit in you, enabling you to speak to him as as a loving father And inviting you into his presence as a dearly beloved child, you have a new intimacy with God. And Jesus follows up that new intimacy with a new inheritance. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You're an heir. And we're dealing with a vast sum of wealth. Being an heir, knowing who's on that final will and testament, it is a big deal. It's the stuff of drama. It drives the plots of movies, and we all hear about it in the news. Everyone wonders who's going to get written out of the will. Everyone's wondering who's the heir apparent for this huge corporation or this massive family. Now, there are a lot of promises in the Bible. There are a lot of promises, About life and health and peace and abundance of thrones and glory and power. And so we're going to wonder who is going to inherit all of that? Who is the heir to the heavenly kingdom? According to the scriptures, it's you is you. You are an heir to God's heavenly kingdom. You are written into God's testaments. You're going to inherit all of these blessings in Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, you are fabulously rich. Listen to what Paul says in verse 1. I mean that an heir, as long as he a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything— the owner of, of everything. When we were in St. Louis, we were friends with uh, a person who was in a very long-standing and successful family business. This business had been in, in, uh, in operation for multiple generations. It was highly successful, and therefore it had grown quite wealthy and had a lot of assets, as well as just the, the actual functioning of the business. For instance, the, uh, the, the business owned uh, some of the best seats in the Cardinals stadium. Uh, and, and they, they were fantastic, and they were at this guy's disposal because the company owned them, but he owned the company. He was the owner of everything. Everything that the company had was his. The heir is the owner of everything, and that's true of you. You, all of the glory of God's kingdom is yours, even now. It's, it's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. That's astounding news for people who were used to being ignored by their deity, unsure of their salvation, no matter how hard they worked. Imagine it. They were in bondage. Paul calls it spiritual slavery. They were shackled to a system that demanded everything but gave nothing. They owed a debt, an extreme debt, but they could not work it off. But then the Son of God came to them, paid their debt with his life, broke their chains, brought them into God's family, said, call God your father, and then gave them the riches of the kingdom. Could you put a price on that? Could you attempt to summarize the wondrous experience of freedom and acceptance in a phrase or two? No. No, words don't do it justice. The only proper response is worship. Jesus is truly amazing. And this is your spiritual story. You in Christ have moved from a slave to a son, from an enemy to a beloved child, to, from a debtor to an heir. Jesus gives you a new identity from God. Jesus gives you a new intimacy with God. And Jesus gives you a new inheritance in God. That's what Jesus offers you. So the logical follow-up question to that would be, why would you turn away from that? Why why would you voluntarily turn around and go the wrong way? Verses 8 and 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Paul is incredulous. How could the Galatians even consider adding Jewish social practice to faith in Christ? You've been freed. Why would you return to spiritual slavery? You might say, wait a minute, how is the Old Testament law, God's law, how is following the Old Testament law falling back into spiritual slavery? Here's why. The Old Testament laws always looked free forward to completion in Christ. We're going to see this when we study study Leviticus in in a handful of weeks. There was a baked-in inadequacy in the entire law. The, the, The law never offered full, complete, permanent forgiveness. It always pointed ahead. And so if you try to use that law to gain salvation without Christ, you're misusing it. It always was meant to point forward to Jesus. And so again, if you cut Jesus out of the equation or the use of the law, you're essentially treating the Old Testament law exactly like any other elementary principle of the world. A tool to gain salvation through work. And so even though this is God's holy law, in their hands it was no better than pagan idol worship. Both are elementary principles, if you follow what Paul is saying in the text. He calls their pagan worship elementary principles. He used the exact same phrase to talk about their improper use of the law. And that's a hard word. I can imagine that many of the Judaizers, in hearing that their adherence to the law was no better than pagan worship, I can imagine them getting quite incensed at that. But it's something that we need to know. Elementary principles are not saviors. They are slavers. They enslave you. They demand total allegiance, but they do not work. They are weak and they are exhausting. Listen to verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Paul is lumping up all of those ands to make a rhetorical point. It's a huge list of demands. It's exhausting to submit yourself to the never-ending demands of the law. It's, it's like a nagging parent. Wash your face, brush your teeth, comb your hair, eat your food, use your manners, pick up your clothes. The list of demands never ends. Why in the world would you submit yourself to that never-ending list trying to earn what you already own? The salvation was already theirs. Paul makes that very clear. They were already children of God. They already owned every single one of God's redemptive promises. It's ludicrous to turn back to legalism. That is the answer to our second question this morning. Why would we turn away from anything Christ offers? We shouldn't. It's clearly a bad choice. But it's one that we're tempted to make all of the time. Our own culture serves up its own elementary principles that offer salvation by effort. Our culture says to make your own identity. Make your own identity. It's in the songs that we sing. Oasis, I'm free to be whatever I choose. Madonna, express yourself. Lady Gaga, just love yourself in your set. Sting, be yourself yourself no matter what they say. Our culture believes in self-empowerment. Make your identity for yourself. But how's that working out? In its wake, that, 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 le- that pressure to make your own identity just leaves us with trim- skyrocketing levels of anxiety and depression especially as you go down with the generations the younger the generation is the more anxiety there is because it's a ton of pressure to have to craft for yourself your own life to craft for yourself your own truth so that you can live your life live your own truth our culture says to find intimacy whenever wherever you want and with whomever you want hugh hefner sums it up This is his philosophy. The major civilizing force in the world is not religion, it is sex. But how's that working out? Ever since the sexual revolution has started, we just see a lineage of broken hearts and broken homes. It's just opened the door to tons of sexual indulgence, addiction, and abuse. Our culture says that working for an inheritance is the best thing that you could possibly do. In previous generations, it used to be the line, something to the effect of, I can sleep when I'm dead. Uh, Now, in our generations, it's find your passion. Do what you love. Our culture celebrates what the New York Times calls performative workaholism. But how's that working out? performative workaholism breeds insane levels of stress and guilt and vocational angst there's no rest there's no respite from this it's all tyranny and there's a christian version of this by the way we can we see all the time people who basically turn christianity into a list of spiritual chores and the band mute math sums this up perfectly in one sentence why can't you do a little more for jesus Why can't you just do a little more for Jesus? But how is that working out? The writer David Zahl nails it when he says that churches who adopt that philosophy have stirred up a legion of burnouts. Friends, these elementary principles don't work. They only harm us. Salvation by effort is the wrong way to go. Jesus is better It's like Martin Luther says, the law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is done already. Grace is better. And that leads us to our final question. How can we stay the course? How can we stay on this road of grace? I think the answer is in verse 11. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. What was Paul working so hard for? If legalism wasn't the goal of his labor, what was? He tells us in Colossians 1... God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this. So what was Paul laboring for? A church that was firmly rooted in Christ where everyone was maturing in Christ, clinging to the glorious mystery of Christ in us. How can we stay the course? Keep your eyes fixed on Christ, the hope of glory. Keep your heart tethered to the mouth-watering, luscious, delicious, amazing, attractive salvation that we have in Jesus alone. That's how you stay the course. You fall in love with Jesus, fall so in love with Jesus that it would be ridiculous to turn to anybody or anything else for salvation. And so how can we do that? How can we fall in love with Jesus so that pushes out the desire for anything else, There are two Puritan writers who can help us with this this morning Thomas Chalmers and John Owen. Thomas Chalmers said that the only way for us to rid our hearts of sinful love is to replace that sinful love with a better love. He he writes We know of no other way to keep the love of the world out of our hearts than to keep in our hearts the love of God. We need to fill our hearts with the love of Jesus. And John Owen tells us how to do that. He says that we need to practice the spiritual intense fixation of the mind, contemplating God in Christ until the soul is swallowed up in admiration and delight. So the only way to purge our hearts of sinful love is to fill them with godly love. And the only way to fill our hearts with godly love is to intensely focus on Jesus until we experience, tangibly experience, delight. That's that's how we can can go about this. We we can call this, and the Christian tradition calls it contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer. Intentionally focusing your mind on the truths of the gospel until your affections change. Spiritual disciplines like contemplative prayer can help us stay the course because they help us experience Christ's love in powerful ways. And so, brothers and sisters, this week I urge you, I commend to you practicing some kind of prayer like this. Please take some time in this next week to practice engaging with God in prayer. Block out 15 minutes. A couple of days in your week. And I will not be offended if right now you whip out your phone and put a calendar reminder on there. Just just right now, even do it. Block out 15 minutes a, a couple of times this week, and then take a sheet of paper and list out all of the benefits that Christ gives you. List out why it is a big deal for you to have a new identity in Christ, to have new intimacy with God, a new inheritance. Write that out. Add some scripture to it, and then sit in prayer, mulling over those truths until the Spirit of God in you causes you to call out, Abba, Father. Keep doing that. Keep doing that until you experience the love of Christ in you. Think of it kind of like a Keurig machine. We have a couple back out there. A Keurig machine. It's not enough for you to simply put the cup into the machine. No, you have to push down on it until it engages. And that's what we're encouraging you in this week. To push down on the truths of the scripture into your heart until your heart engages. To quote John Owen again, the best acts of our souls towards Christ's love is admiration, astonishing admiration till the heart is quite overwhelmed with it. Because when your heart is overwhelmed with admiration for Christ, all of the elementary principles of the world will rightly seem weak and worthless. And if I can just speak to where we are at as a congregation these days. Now is the perfect time for you to learn to experience the love of Christ in prayer, for you to learn how to tangibly savor Christ. Many of us are in times of transition, and transitions are always hard. Some of you are going off to college. Some of you are going to college again. There are jobs that are changing, families are changing, friends are moving. There's all kinds of transitions. And even when they are good, transitions are still hard. Anytime you're in a transition, you feel unstable. And whenever we feel unstable, we tend to reach out to things that are not going to help us. And so how are we going to stay the course as the people of God in times of transition? Learn to love Jesus. Remember that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You have Jesus. You do not need anything else. So don't turn away from him. Don't go the wrong way because nothing else will satisfy you the way that Jesus does. Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, Abba, Dear Father, we thank you that you have adopted us. Miserable sinners though we were, you have brought us into your family, clothed us in Christ, and called us beloved children. We pray that that would sink into our hearts, that you would give us wisdom and insight to, and tenacity commitment to intensely press those truths into our hearts until our hearts engage. Root out all self-love. Root out all of the ways that the world has tempted us to craft an identity for ourselves. to find intimacy wherever we want, to work, work, work for an inheritance when you have given us one. Lord, let your grace woo us again and help us to love Jesus with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We pray all of this in Jesus' own name. Amen.